Can you take a moment to uh, turn the person next to you and say, uh, let's live for Christ. Can you do that? Let's live for Christ. As uh, we, our, our presider, Seho, announced, uh, we witnessed a wedding. Some, we celebrate the wedding of Kong and Yedim. She, they're here now. Can, we, can you guys stand up real quick to say hello? Let's give them a round of applause. Yes. Praise God. Uh, first Sunday worship service for the newly married couple. We uh, thank God for that, that we could be a part of this. Um, the, the day that they got married, it was our son Elijah's sixth birthday, and so he's been kind of going around to the store and saying, this is the present that I want, and he's, uh, he's graduated from the Paw Patrol, he's now in the Power Rangers, a little bit more uh, adult stuff now. So when uh, he, he'll, he'll go and our kids will all tell us the kind of presents that they want at the store, and two things I look for on the label, I look to see if it's age appropriate, it should say age six plus if it's Elijah. Uh, or, you know, something lower than that. I also look for this uh, one thing. If it says assembly required, then I think, oh, my goodness, this is going to cost a little bit of my life. And so, <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I, I'm not very good at building things, constructing things. I, I, I mentioned how uh, if it's, it takes a normal person about 30 minutes, it probably takes me about three hours. And if it takes a normal person a day, it probably takes me about a week in order to build. And so um, our house is pretty much filled with things that have been misconstructed by me. There's uh, times when, uh, when our oldest daughter, Manny, was a little girl, and she really wanted a dollhouse. We'd get a dollhouse and would put it together and uh, be so frustrating. I'd be, like, sweating. Even in the Florida winter, I'd be, like, sweating trying to put it together and, like, stripping all of the screws and everything. And, and so Manny would be, like, so impatient because she wants her dollhouse. And, you know, uh, such and such as dad made it in, like, shorter time than you, daddy. Why are you taking so long? And so I'll tell her to go away, you know, be patient. You know, I'm tr Daddy's trying to teach you how to be patient. You wait in order that you can appreciate. Okay, so Daddy's taking his time in order that you'll love it more. And so I would send her away, and she'll come back, Daddy, is it done yet? And no, and I'm, like, working on it. And, and then she'd come back, and she's like, Daddy, why are you taking things apart now? It's like, because Daddy put the things in the wrong place. And, and so it's a, it's a kind of harrowing experience for me to try and put these things together. Uh, she'll get this, like, crooked dollhouse, and she'll think it's, the, it's a great thing because her daddy made it. But I, I don't really like putting things together, and it's a very difficult thing for me to do. Uh, but hope came to me in the Word of God in this one passage where the temple of God was being built. Yeah, I don't know if you guys re uh, remember reading this in the Old Testament, but when the temple was being built, it required many, many people to do, and it says that God endowed people with His Holy Spirit in order that they might have gifts in craftsmanship, in woodworking, in artistic ability, in order that they might build the temple properly. So I I said, this is great. You know, typically in my mind, when I think of being filled with the Spirit, I think of like worship, I think of prayer, I think of speaking in tongues. But in that context, it said God filled people with His Holy Spirit in order that they might be able to build things. So the next time I built something, I prayed to God. I said, Lord, as you did in the days of the temple construction, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit in order that I might be able to assemble this coffee table from Ikea in Jesus' name? Amen. And when I had to cut Elijah's hair, you know, sometimes I get nervous that I'm going to mess up his hair. So I say, Lord, in the name of Jesus, you who uh, fill people with your spirit so that they might be able to do artistic work and crafty work and things like that, would you help me? And when I pray these prayers, I've realized that people would say, Elijah, I really like your haircut. They say that more than they did before I prayed, when I didn't pray. And I finished it in a lot quicker time. 
I took comfort in knowing that we have a God who's able to work in these ways, and I think about these things, and the only, the only thing I can think is, man, this had to have been the work of God because he did through me what I couldn't do before. Praise God, and I get very excited about that. What happens? Have you ever had a time where you accomplished a task, a mission, a work, something that was so seemingly difficult to you that you prayed and you knew that the only way you got through this was because of the work of God? Maybe it was a project at work. Maybe it's as you graduate with an IB diploma from Cypress Creek High School like some of y'all did, and you're like, man, this was like the death, like the sentence of death literally with every exam that I took. Maybe you got through AP exams. Maybe it's graduating, getting your master's degree, getting your college degree, your graduate, whatever it is. You ever had, maybe it's a week or a month of life where you just looked at and you're like, if I can just make it through May, then things are going to be okay. A sickness, whatever it might be. And you get through it and you look back and you're like, man, the only way, the only way that I made it was by the grace of God and the hand of God getting me through this. What do you do? What do you do in the aftermath of a week like that, of a month, of two months like that? Because this is where we are in the true story of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Thirteen chapters in the book of Nehemiah, we've gone through six of them, and at the end, at the start of chapter 7, which we're going to read today, we're going to see that the temple has finally, I'm sorry, the walls around Jerusalem have finally been constructed. So where do we go now? Because what had not been done for 95 years finally gets accomplished, but it gets accomplished in 52 days. So that as a result, all of the neighboring countries are looking at the walls of Jerusalem and saying, surely God had to have been in this. And it says the fear of God struck the surrounding nations because they knew that it was God who had got them through this rebuilding project. So where do we go now? Because it seems like this is the climactic moment in the book of Nehemiah, but we're not even halfway through. Where do we go now? Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. There's 73 verses in Nehemiah chapter 7. More than half of it is a genealogy. It's a phone book of people. Probably as you get through your Bible reading plan, this is where you start skipping over passages. But there's something extremely significant in Nehemiah chapter 7. This is the hinge between the first half of Nehemiah and the second half. And this is the word of God for the people of God from the journal of Nehemiah. He says in chapter 7, verse 1, After the wall had been rebuilt and I'd set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. We'll stop here for now. We'll read a couple more verses later and then kind of uh, walk through this, this passage. But what is happening here? In the first four verses of chapter 7, we see this kind of attaching itself to the first half, the first six chapters of Nehemiah, where the focus of Nehemiah was on the rebuilding of the walls around the city. Two and a half miles, 40 feet high, eight feet wide, eight feet thick. The walls 
surrounding Jerusalem were rebuilt in order that the identity of the people of God might be preserved and so that enemies would not attack. That's the first half. The second half of of Nehemiah is going to be spent not talking about the rebuilding of the walls, but talking about the rebuilding of the people within the walls, how people might be brought to life within the walls of Jerusalem. So as we look into this, we're going to look at three thoughts here. The first thought is this. What do you do when you come to the end of a great work that you know God's hand was in? First thing is to realize this. There's more work to be done So don't let your guard down. There's more work to be done. So don't let your guard down. Here's what's happened. Verse 1, the wall had been rebuilt. I'd set the doors in place. Gatekeepers, all these people are now in place. Here's what's happened. For 100 years, the people of God have come back into the city, but for 100 years, 100 plus years, the walls had not been rebuilt. And so the question is, who's going to do this? And in the midst of that, Nehemiah takes on this project. He begins rebuilding the walls, getting everybody involved. And immediately, when he starts this rebuilding process, there's opposition from all around. All the surrounding nations from north, east, south, and west, they start attacking him, opposing him, trying to get him to be afraid, trying to get him to quit this project. Halfway through the project, there's bickering, not only bickering, there's oppression, there's trafficking, there's there's slavery. That threatens to derail this project, but after only 52 days, the walls are built, the gates are in place, the locks are fastened, and the building project is done. They're done. So what are you going to do now? Eli Manning, you've just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do? I'm going to Disney World. Where are you going to do? What are you going to do after this great project is done? What are you going to do? That's what Nehemiah does. He puts guards in place. And he gives him instructions, don't open the gates until the sun is hot. What is he saying? And then he says, and then I'm going to put some guards around Jerusalem, some at the posts and some near their own houses. Here's what he's saying. Even though the gates and the walls have been built, I don't want you to open up the gates until the sun is hot. In other words, when the sun is out and it's bright as day, that's when you can open the gates and let people come in because we don't want there to be a sneak attack during the middle of the night. Because though the walls are done, though the work seems to be finished, there's still more work to be done. So don't let your guard down. You know, we talked about this. We talked about how you need to uh, strengthen the areas where the walls are vulnerable in your life. Where are you vulnerable? Nehemiah says, here's the one way that many of us are vulnerable when we finish a good work for God. It's easy for us to let our guard down in those places, isn't it? My, uh, I, had a, I knew a guy in college. Um, he, was, uh, he, was, he was very smart. He was very different. Uh, he thought differently than everybody else did. He went to a high school called Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. It's one of the, probably the three best high schools in the nation. Uh, competitive. Uh, from there, he went on to uh, University in Virginia, uh, University of Virginia. We were, we, were, uh, we were students there at the same time. He's a year older than me. His name was Hoon. Yeah, his name was Hoon. I won't say his last name in case some of you run into him one day. But he was a weird, different kind of bird. Very smart, very sharp. Um, he would study all the time. Remember one night, uh, probably like at midnight or one in the morning, we were a group of us were studying at the library, and I was about to go home. It was probably about one o'clock at that time, and he was still studying. Uh, he wasn't with the rest of the crew. At some, uh, some campuses, uh, 
people say to each other, let's go study. But really what they mean is let's bring our books out and let's hang out together. That's what it means. He wasn't part of that crew, right? I was part of that crew. He was part of the crew that actually studied. And so he was studying all by himself. And as I was leaving, I was like, hey, uh, I'm going to go. You got a test tomorrow? He's like, yeah, I got a test. I might stay up all night. I was like, all right, man, do well on your test. He's like, thanks. And then I left. The next day, I went back to the library to have my quote-unquote study session, and he was there again late at night studying. So I said to him, hey, how'd your test go? He said, I went really well. I think I aced it. I think I did really well on it. I said, how come uh, you're here? You have another test? He's like, yeah, I have another test. Uh, it's about two weeks. I was like, dude, why don't you go home and sleep then? Right? You were up all night last night. Go home and sleep. And this is what he said. He said two things that, that kind of cemented in my mind the fact that this guy is weird. He said, <laughs> he said, no joke, like two things. He said, I can sleep when I'm dead. I was like, what's wrong with you, man? <laughs> and then the second thing he said, this is what he said. Even though my test is in two weeks, he said, while you sleep, the pages of your competitors' books continue to turn. It's like, who talks like that? But here's what, he, here's what he's saying. Listen, I'm in, the, I'm in the commerce school here. There's 120 people, how many people, and these people are the ones I'm competing with, not only against a curve, but I'll be competing with them for a job later. I just finished a massive exam, but I'm not about to put my guard down. I'm going to keep on working. There's more work to be done. There's another test to be taken, and I'm going to keep on going even though nobody else does because they're people who want the position that I've got. This is what Nehemiah is saying here. You finished a great work. That's awesome, but there's still work to be done. Okay, here's the work. You remember what the work is. It doesn't have to be something that you think is great, but anything that we do for God because the one for whom we do it is what determines its greatness. Soon as you fit. So this is, where, this is where a lot of times we let our guard down. I just had a great, I just led a great Bible study today. Man, our Sunday school class was awesome. I just finished uh, four days of VBS, and, and man, the kids love me, and they really learned about Jesus. Our house church is doing really well. Uh, let's go ahead and take the summer off now. It's after these moments where we think we've done a great work for God that it's easy for us to let our guard down. But what Nehemiah is saying is you've got an enemy who doesn't sleep, who doesn't care that you've let your guard down because you've done something awesome. He's not waiting for you to get yourself protected before he begins to attack you in your vulnerabilities. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, listen, if you think you're standing firm, that's when you need to be careful lest you fall. It's easy for us to let our guard down after we've done something for the work of God, something of the work of God, and then for us to say, you know what, I deserve a little bit of time off. Man, that retreat was awesome. I just, man, I sought God for so much of my life. That Daniel fast was so good, 21 days. I just, man, I, my, I felt my heart just coming alive in Jesus. 46 days, I sacrificed. I gave up everything for Jesus. I came to morning prayer seven times, woke up early, and, and man, I'm ready to get some sleep now. I just came back from this mission trip, and my heart is on fire for God, and I committed to, to reading the Word and praying every day, but uh, let me catch up on rest so that it's not going to hurt me in the long run. And then we let our guard down, and the enemy begins to speak lies into our heart, and day by day by day by day, the days go on, 
until we realize, man, it's been a week, it's been two weeks, it's been three weeks since I was so hungry for the presence of God. But I no longer have that longing and that desire anymore. My pastor in college, he used to tell me, uh, when I started doing ministry, I started going and, and, and preaching in different contexts and leading Bible studies and, and meeting up with people. He said, every time you meet somebody, you got to pray a lot before that because you're speaking truth that could shape their eternity. Every time you lead a Bible study, every time you lead a house church, every time you preach a sermon, every time you counsel somebody, every time you, whatever it is that you do for God, you've got to pray a lot before that so that God's power might come and be made perfect in that place. We all know that, right? He also said, but as you're doing it, as you're ministering, as you're preaching, right, you constantly have communication in your mind with God, Lord, you need to do this. I can't do this apart from you. As you're talking with people, as you're counseling people, you've got to constantly be praying. We may know that. But then he said, but what most people don't do is after that, you need to pray just as much because that's when the enemy wants to attack you. After you've had this awesome mission trip that you've been praying and missions training all these weeks for, you pray in the morning, you pray at night as you're in the DR, as you're in Ecuador, as you're in Honduras, as you're in Jordan, wherever it is that you go. You pray during that time, and then you come back, and then we just let our guard down. And then we begin being attacked with pride, with lust, with the love of money, with the love of self, with laziness, with comfort. Nehemiah says, there's more work to be done. We're not done yet. I remember talking with a pastor several years back. He had preached at a conference here in Orlando. I had dinner with him after he preached at that conference. The very next day, one of our guys called me up. He's like, DL, who was that guy that you had dinner with? He, he, he had seen us eating there. And he, then he sent me a picture of this website. He said, I think your boy got busted. This guy was preaching at a conference Two days later, he was all over the news, busted on video, underage solicitation. If you don't know what that means, that's fine. It's something you could be in jail for for a very long time. Separated from his family. So they asked me, can you come and talk to this guy? Two days after, he's all over the most famous person in Korea, his wife said. I met with him at a Starbucks in a Koei. And I was like, dude, what happened? How'd you, what happened? And this is what he said. He said, preaching at that conference in Orlando was the highlight of my ministry life. And as soon as that was done, the enemy attacked. He does that with us too. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a leader. Every one of us, every one of us, if you're a child of God, you are a threat to the kingdom of darkness. There's work to be done, so don't let your guard down. He says, position the guards, get them ready. You got to be ready because the enemy never sleeps and always wants to attack. It's the first thing. There's more work to be done, so don't let your guard down. Second thing that he says, okay, when it comes to the work of God, okay, when it comes to the work of God, people matter more than projects. Okay? When it comes to the work of God, people matter more than projects. Verse 4. Now, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Here's what Nehemiah is saying. As he writes his journal. He's like, man, the walls are beautiful. Everything is great on the outside, but what good is a city with walls 
if there's no people to dwell in it. The, the, the enemy's fine. Okay, you guys have your walls. You have your walled city. That's cool. As long as we don't start getting involved with people, he's fine. I'll give you your project, he says, but let me have your people. And what Nehemiah is saying, the walls are great, but the people matter more. Because as you start reading in verse 8 and go all the way to verse 73, last night our daughter Manny came out of her room like eight times and she's like, I can't fall asleep, I can't fall asleep, I'm having a hard time sleeping. I should have told her to read Nehemiah 7, she'd have fallen asleep pretty quickly. But it's a list of names, basically like reading through a Jerusalem phone book until you, it's not, it's not phone numbers, but it's the numbers of their family members that came. Genealogies tell us a lot. There's always a message in them. What is the message of the numbers and the message of the names? The message is that you might not care about any of these names, but God does. You might not care about any of these people, but God cares. You might not care to know the name of people that you might see even here, but what God says, what Nehemiah says, that God cares. And in his book, he knows your name. He knows where you're from. He knows your story. Okay, somebody once said this, the enemy, he knows your name, but he calls you by your sin and by your failure. God knows you. He knows your sin and your failure, but he calls you by your name because he has a better story that he's writing in your life. He's got a better story that he's writing in my life also. People matter more than projects. A lot of times it's comfortable for us to disengage with people in order that we might just do our projects. But at the end of the day, it's people that's important. Buildings are going to go to the graveyard of all construction sites. But people are eternal. Every bridge that is built, every building that is built, every house, every church, every temple, every, every edifice is going to one day crumble but people are eternal. Do you see that? Do you see that people matter? I, I, I think, to me, that's one of the ways that we know how close we are to the heart of Jesus. That we begin to see people the way that Jesus does. When you hear about people that Brother Matt talked about, how do, you, how, do you, how do you think? How do you feel? I don't know who they are. It's not even their real name. But does your heart beat and does your heart break because these people matter to Jesus? How do you see your spouse? Can I ask you? How do you see your roommate? Do you see them the way that Jesus does? How do you see the person next to you? Do you see them for what you can get out of them? Or do you see them the way that Jesus does? How do you see the person who holds up a sign walking up and down Orange Blossom Trail? How do you see that person? Do you see them the way that Jesus does? How do you see the person who sits out and hangs out underneath the bridge? Downtown Orlando. How do you see them? Do you see them the way that Jesus does? How do you see your house church members? Yeah, the frustrating ones, the annoying ones, the ones who don't, follow through on their promises? 
How do you see those youth students? How do you see your children? How do you see your parents? Do you see them the way that Jesus does? This could be the way that you gauge how close you are to Jesus more than any other way. Do you see the way that Jesus does? Do you see people the way that Jesus does? Because that's what matters. Nameless, faceless numbers to us. Every one of us matters to God. John chapter 10, I know my sheep and I call them by name. He knows your name. We're not going to sing this today, but he sees each tear that falls. Nobody else may see it. Nobody else you might think cares. But he sees and he knows. And as my professor used to say, he tastes the salt from your tears in his mouth because he's that close to you. He knows you. How do you see people? Because they're infinitely more valuable than any project, any portfolio, any reputation, any popularity, any praise that you could get. But so often we get it twisted, don't we? We get it messed up. I get it messed up all the time. And as I'm preparing this message, I'm repenting in my heart. Lord, remind me that all these things out there that we do for you are nothing if we're not loving the people within the walls of our church, within the walls of a city, the people that we're called to be in relationship with, and the people. The Apostle Paul not only loved people in front of him, he loved humanity. He loved people. And in every person, no matter how broken, how messed up, how busted, how jacked up, how checkered their past, there is the image of God in every single one of them. I, I Googled most expensive buildings in the world. There's one in Saudi Arabia, 15 billion with a B, 15 billion dollars. The second and third are in Singapore, seven million, five and a half, I'm sorry, seven billion, five and a half billion dollar projects. But can I tell you something that the least person on planet Earth is worth infinitely more than that $15 billion building project. Because the price to redeem and to buy that person was the infinite blood of the infinite worthy Son of God, Jesus Christ. Every person that you've ever laid eyes on has infinite worth in the eyes of God, and they have to have worth to us also because people are far more valuable and matter far more than projects do. There's a women's prison in, in uh, Corona, California. All women, violent. People get beat up all the time. The, the unofficial motto is it's the survival of the fittest. So people were at their wits end trying to figure out what do we do to curb the violence within this place. It is inhumane in here. So someone came up with this idea. They presented it to the warden. They said, why don't we do a compassion games? What is that? It's like an Olympic games, but you score points through compassion. They said, let's give it a try. And so the inmates, not that you are inmates, but the inmates were broken up into four different teams. The gang leaders who stayed in those prisons, who were incarcerated there, were called... Uh, what were they called? Uh, they were called compassion ambassadors. And the inmates were called compassionistas. 
every single one of them. And they started earning points. And so the new motto of, the, of that prison became the survival of the kindest. And every time they did something kind, they would get points. In that first year, for 11 days, they scored 4,600 points. The warden said, I've never seen anything like this before. They said, next year, let's do it again. Let's try for 10,000 points, 10,000 acts of compassion. And so they did it the next year. So people were um, getting food from the, from the lunch line and bringing it to other people. There were inmates who were going and scrubbing the floor of other prison inmates' cells. They would put sunblock on their hands and they would rub it on each other's back in order that they wouldn't get burned when they go outside. And the culture of that prison began to change because they began to see each other not as competition, not as animals, not as hopeless people. They began to see them as people who mattered. And they began scoring all kinds of points. And at one point, something happened. There was a lockdown. They needed to find something. And so everyone had to go outside. And they said for those, it was 108 degrees, no air conditioning. And they said in that place, they were afraid that violence would break out. But they said instead, they started shouting encouragement to each other. Remember, be compassionate to each other, guys. I mean, it's crazy, right? Prison inmates. Be compassionate to each other. Stay hydrated, ladies. Stay hydrated so you don't pass out. This one lady who was artistically gifted started drawing artwork and, and 20 pieces of art, and she put them up all over the prison, reminding people, let's love each other. Let's love each other. And they said in those 11 days, there were zero acts of violence in that place. Because they began to see people, maybe not the way that Jesus did, but they began to see that they mattered. And the culture of that place began to change. The final event of that Compassion Games was that each of the four teams would send up a representative, and they would run a relay race. And they would run, and everyone would be cheering them on. They would pass it on to the next person who would run. They'd be cheering them on, pass it on, pass it on. There's only one team, so there's no real winner unless you think that everyone's a winner, which everyone was. And at the end, as the last person crossed the finish line, they all started cheering. They all started giving each other hugs, saying, listen, they might have told us that we're losers, but every single one of us is a winner. Every single one of us is a winner, and we're all on the same team, and you matter. You matter. People matter to God. So their names are listed, written out, so that you and I would know that God knows you. He hears you. He loves you. He cares for you. And the only way that you're going to be able to take that love to other people is if you understand that God loves you in this way. Forget about all those people out there. For God so loved the world out there. You need to know that God loves you. That God loves you individually, personally, you, that so much so that if you're the only person on the earth, he would still have sent his son Jesus to die for you. Personally, individually, for God so loved you singular that he gave his one and only son for your life so that you might know that you matter, that people matter, that individuals matter far more than projects do. The second thing, last thing that we see, Rick 
this record of the genealogy, those who return to Jerusalem, the last thing is that you are the bridge between the work of God in the past and the work of God in the future. This is huge. You are that bridge. Verse 5. Understanding cities large, few people. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. And starting from verse 6, he just recopies the record of history of those who returned from Babylon and Persia back to Jerusalem. What's happening here? God puts it in his heart. How will we inhabit the city of Jerusalem? He says, let's go back and look at history. Let's look at history. And he starts talking history to them. (coughs) It's interesting because during the time of the exile, when you could just imagine, let's be Jews right now. Let's be Israelites. We're living in Jerusalem. About 586 B.C., Babylon comes, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they destroy everything around us. So say some foreign nation, foreign army comes and invades Orlando, central Florida. They burn down your house. They burn down all of our houses. They burn down our church. They burn down every semblance of shelter. They burn down every store. There's nothing left. It is literally a ghost town. There's dust. There's fires everywhere. And the people have either been killed, kidnapped, raped, beaten, whatever it is, but we're all taken off into another place. This is no longer where we live. And so we go to a foreign land where they speak a different language. We don't have, any, we don't have the currency. They change our names. Right? This is what an imperialistic Japan did to the Korean Peninsula. Forcing a different language, different names, learning, re-education. And so here we are getting brainwashed into the teachings of another place. And so in 586 B.C., that becomes the biggest black mark on the history of Israel. So we're living in Babylon. We die out. Our children grow up. They die out. Next generation comes. It's 100 years since then, 140, maybe three, four, five generations have come and gone, and they're still living in Persia. The question is, when Cyrus gives the edict, hey, you can go back now. You can go back to Jerusalem. Who wants to go back? Who wants to go back? Does anyone want to go back? No one wants to go back to the land of their forefathers because their homes are not even there. We don't even speak the language of, 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 the, of, of the town anymore. All of these things are different. Everything has changed. Why would we go back to a ghost town? To leave the comforts of what we now call home and, and for generations our family has called home. Why would we leave there now? And Nehemiah says, let me tell you about a group of people who left that and came back to this desolate city. And here are their names. Parash, Shephelah, Era, and all these people whose names we cannot pronounce. Why did they go back? Why did they come back to this ghost town to rebuild something when they had it all over there? Why did they go back? It wasn't for fame. It wasn't for money. It wasn't for status. It wasn't for a woman or a man. It wasn't for any of these things. It was because they believed that there was a promise that had been given to them by their God to their forefather Abraham that said, from this place, you will become a beacon to the world, 
I will give this land to you. You will become a great people, and every nation on earth will be blessed because of you. And there are people who believe that promise. And they said, we will give up everything in order that we would cling to that promise, even if it costs us everything that we know. And he's saying, now the walls have been built. The walls have been built, and we're calling for people. Right now, 90% of the people, chapter 3, chapter 11 of Nehemiah tells us, 90% live in the countryside. But we need this city to become strong. Will you move back into the city of Jerusalem? And the way that he motivates them, inspired by God, he says, remember the people who've gone before us. Remember your ancestors, remember your fathers, remember your grandfathers, your grandmothers, your mothers. They came back and they left it all in order that the promise of God would be realized so that you might one day live in this city rebuilt for the glory of God. It says, you where you now stand, the generations before you have passed that baton, and you've got it right now, and they're asking as they hold it out, will you grab a hold of it so that you can take it to the generation who comes behind you? This is your inheritance in Jesus Christ, where you now stand, where we now stand. We have a baton in our hands, and he says, will you claim this inheritance? Why? Because it has nothing to do with us, with the Middle East right now. Well, maybe it does, but it doesn't right now, where you sit right now. What is he saying? Why do we do this? Why is he challenging us with this? Because 2,500 years after Nehemiah, we now stand in this place where we know how the story is going to end. And the next to last chapter of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, this is what the apostle, the beloved apostle John says as he gets another revelation from God in the same way that Nehemiah did. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Check this, verse 2, 21, chapter 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. He said, one day there's going to be a new Jerusalem, a new city of God, a new city of peace, a new holy city where we are longing for people to dwell, the new heaven and the new earth. Who will dwell? Who will inhabit in that place? He says at the end of chapter 21, he says, nothing impure, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nehemiah is saying, listen, I'm recording in my book the people who came to dwell in Jerusalem so that generations future could come to know this God. But where we are 2,500 years later, there is a new Jerusalem within whose gates we long for people to come and dwell. And the only ones who dwell there are those whose names are also written in a book, not Nehemiah's book, though great as it might be to be in that book, the greater reward, the greater treasure, the greater longing of every human heart is that one day our names would be written in the Lamb's book of life. And the only reason we're going to be there is not because we're faithful, not because we're sacrificial, but because the blood of a perfect Lamb of God was shed in order that we might be brought into the walls of that city to live with him forever and ever and ever. And so what he's saying as we stand here, as we sit here in 2018, He says, the baton is in your hands. Will you remember those who've gone before you? Remember those people who've gone before you. Remember people like Matt and their family who gave everything up with a baby in tow in order that they might live for the glory of God, in order that people who never heard of the gospel of Jesus would one day come to live in the new Jerusalem to sacrifice everything 
even at cost to their lives and their children, in order that they might live for the glory of God. It says, remember people like that. Remember people. So I think about this. I just came back from a trip to San Diego, pastor's conference for our denomination, Korean pastors, Korean speaking. And there was a time where we honored those who in this past year, Korean, American, Korean pastors from our denomination who went home to be with the Lord, who are now waiting to live in the new Jerusalem as it showed these men of God as they laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. I couldn't help but think these were the people who brought the gospel to my parents and your parents and our parent generation. We had the people who were retired pastors who retired, who were in attendance, and there's about 30, 40 of them lined up. And as we stood to applaud them and to thank them for their labors in the gospel for the sake of the Lord, as I saw them, I couldn't help but be grateful for them. As I looked at the wrinkles on their faces, each one, each wrinkle telling a story of sacrifice, each graying and white hair telling a story of the faithfulness of God, each tear that fell as we stood to cheer them, talking, telling them, speaking a story of the worthiness of God, that if they had a thousand lives, we would give it all up for Jesus again so that people would dwell in the new Jerusalem, that their lives would be written in the Lamb's book of life. He says, remember these people in order that you might take the gospel to the next generation. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confess. Remember people like that. Remember people like that. Remember people who've gone before us. Remember Tico. Remember Joshua. Through whose life, because of his willing sacrifice, countless people in Ecuador are being saved. Remember Pastor Kenny who went to take the gospel to the nations. Whose life we honor through this building. It's not the building. It's the people who come to know Jesus through it. There's work to be done, my friends. The baton is squarely in your hands. Here's what it means. It means you go and you serve VBS with all of your heart and you pray because there's work to be done. It means you rise up and you say, I will invest into our youth, into the next generation because I have received an inheritance that I want to pass on to the coming generation. It means you rising up and saying, God, whatever you call me to do, I will faithfully do because of the glory of God in my life. I'm a chain in a long link of witnesses that goes all the way back, Father Abraham and beyond. And God forbid that that baton stops with me, but I'll pass it on to those who come for the glory of God and for the joy of people all around the world. This is our inheritance in Christ. Even if it means suffering for the sake of the gospel, would you do it? Would you go? Would you believe that he's worthy? that our response would be a resounding, he's worth it. I'll go and I'll follow you. Let's pray together. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Let's respond to the word of God. How does God want you to respond to his word today? As you hear the testimony from Brother Matt about what's going on in the world, as you hear the word of God as it's spoken over us, connecting history past with eternity future, What's God calling you to do and who is he calling you to be for such a time as this? Let's take a moment to pray to God. What is the work of God that you need to take a step of faith for? Who in the next generation do you hear their cries? How have you put other things before people in your economy of priorities? Let's ask God, forgive, cleanse, Wash me, and Lord, give me conviction and faith that I might take a step of faith 
that I might live out your word. I don't want to just be moved. I want to move for the glory of God. Let's pray together for a couple moments. And we'll uh, continue to worship through our giving, our offering of our lives. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that Christianity didn't come out of America. Thank you that we're not jumping on this train of that which is hip and cool and has been around for 15 years and it's going to fade away. We thank you that we're part of something that is eternal, that in every continent, in every nation, in every century, the world has been bowing their knee to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you that we're part of this, that we're just one link in that chain. Thank you that there have been men and women, the blood of the martyrs that has become the seed of many churches. Thank you that many lands have been soaked with the tears of missionaries and pastors who laid down their lives, lay people, who said, I will go and I will follow the call of God in order that people that I've never before met, their names would be written in the book of life and I would dwell with them in the new Jerusalem. Thank you so much that there have been people who have been willing to exchange temporary goodbyes in order that they might receive eternal hellos from people the world around. Lord, give us eyes of faith. Strengthen us comfort us that we might go wherever it is that you call us to go and that we would take your gospel to the nations to the generations to all around for the glory of Jesus name thank you so much we love you because you've loved us first pray all these things in Jesus name